This is FinTech Takes, the podcast keeping you in the loop on all the latest FinTech trends, news, and ideas. I'm Alex Johnson, creator of the FinTech Takes newsletter, your host and self-confessed FinTech nerd. Let's go. Hello, welcome to FinTech Takes. Uh, We have a very special episode for you today, another uh, episode of Bank Nerd Corner with my friend and the managing editor of Bank Director, Kia Hazlitt. Um, You might expect listening to this podcast that we will be talking about the recent failure of Silicon Valley Bank, uh, as well as the sort of rising trend of bank failures, how FDIC insurance works. And I'm just here to tell you that you won't be hearing that. Uh, We recorded this episode a while ago before all of this craziness happened. Um, I promise you that we will get into it. And uh, the next episode of Bank Nerd Corner will be a deep dive into many of those topics. We'll be able to do that with uh, the benefit of a little bit more hindsight and reporting and being able to see the outcomes more broadly on the banking industry. So for now, please enjoy a non-SVB Bank Nerd Corner podcast featuring interesting discussions around a chip card shortage, a new fintech company that's solving a problem that's related to what we've been talking about recently, and uh, a little bit more information on the FIS WorldPay spinout. So with that, I will drop you into the podcast. Hi, Alex. Thank you for that introduction. And um, I like your hat. You've got a lot of drip going on that's very relevant for, for today's conversation. And because this is an audio medium, your hat says Durban exempt. How fitting. It is. It is. Yes. Shout out to my friends at the This Week in Fintech community who have some excellent merch, including the Durban exempt hat, which I just had to have. So I figured that would be an appropriate hat for our discussion today. Um, Getting to the point, honestly, where I have so much fintech merch that I have to sort of personalize the merch that I choose for the day because there's a lot to choose from. But uh, this one's now one of my favorites. What do you tell people when you wear it at the grocery store and they ask what Durban exempt means? You know, Kia, I, I have a whole like plan for how I'm going to explain it and why it's exciting and like getting them on board. And then they don't ask. They don't ask. They yeah, just don't, they don't ask. They're know. like some nerd thing that I don't care about. And they just they don't even ask. So um, I'm just praying for the day when someone at the grocery store asks or my son's preschool teacher asks or whatever. Like I'm ready to go. I have a whole spiel. But sadly, that has not happened yet. So well, let us know when it does. I'm really excited to see how the story ends. Okay, I'll bring it back once there's a conclusion to that story. Um, Speaking of conclusions to various stories, I'd love to start, as we typically do on this podcast, breaking down some recent-ish news from the banking ecosystem. We have a couple, I think, uh, interesting stories that are worth kind of pulling apart and nerding out on. And then, as a reminder to the audience, after that, we will sort of hone in on sort of a wait-but-why question. So something that's maybe obscure or interesting or that we don't quite understand or that maybe the listeners don't quite understand, and we'll try to sort of explore what the hell's going on there. And then we'll end with a possibly unanswerable question. So poking a very, very broad, maybe useless question, but something that we think is interesting and that might generate some interesting discussion. So Kia, you ready to go? Yeah, hit me. What do you got this week? All right. So uh, first story is from the Washington Post and says the chip shortage comes to some 
cards. So uh, I think as uh, listeners know and have probably experienced, we are having a chip shortage globally within the global supply chain. I've tried to buy a minivan for the last year or so. And every time I go to the dealership, they basically laugh in my face and send me on my way, which is not the experience I'm used to having at car dealerships. But basically, there are just no chips. And so that is affecting the automotive industry. It's affecting the computer industry, the smartphone industry. And interestingly, and this is not something I realized until Kia, you sent me this article, it's affecting the credit card and debit card industry as well. So um, by way of background, in the US, we shifted to chip cards or EMV cards around 2015, 2016. And the reason that I know that date pretty well is in 2015, I actually started working as the director of research at Mercator Advisory Group, leading all of their credit card research. And the first job I had, my first project was to create a set of forecasts for the adoption of chip cards in the US. Uh, The U.S. had lagged behind Europe and many other countries in adopting this more secure card technology that makes it harder to counterfeit and spoof payment cards and use them at the point of sale. And the card networks were in 2015 just finally getting around to pushing the U.S. to adopt these cards. And so I was asked, hey, can you, you know, create our forecast for that? I didn't know what EMV was or stood for at the time that I did that. So uh, my forecast was definitely sort of uh, licking my finger and sticking it up into the wind a little bit. But you know, nevertheless, got to learn a lot about that process, what goes into manufacturing these cards, and you know what, what it was going to take to get the U.S. to switch to these cards. And what was interesting was that a big lever that was used to drive the adoption of these cards was a liability shift that the card networks mandated. And so the basic idea was that traditionally, credit card issuers, banks, have been responsible for the liability for fraud that happened at the point of sale if there was a a fraudulent transaction. However, in order to get merchants to upgrade their point of sale systems, which was kind of the big holdup in terms of getting chip cards out into the market, because you can't, there's no point in giving people chip cards if they're just going to swipe them because the terminals only accept mag stripes and not chip cards. So to get merchants to upgrade their terminals, which they really didn't want to do, the card networks basically said, hey, after this date, if you don't have the ability to accept chip cards and a card that has a chip is presented and there's fraud on that card because you didn't let them dip their card, you made them swipe it using the mag stripe, you're going to be responsible for the fraud, not the issuer or the merchant. And so that was a big stick that was used to encourage merchants to adopt them. And merchants grumbled about it, but ultimately we ended up making the shift over to EMV cards. According to this article, chip-enabled cards were swiped for 80 5% of transactions made in the US between July 2021 and June 2022. And that is a little bit less than what it is globally. Globally, it's about 92%. So again, we sort of lag the rest of the world, but it's relatively close. We've actually caught up quite a bit. The challenge now, though, something that I did not anticipate is that the lead times for producing chip cards, so if you order new chip cards, are now averaging 20 to 25 weeks, according to this article. And that compares to a pre-pandemic range of like 10 to 14 weeks before. And so essentially, it's doubled in terms of the length of time it takes to get these cards. And you know, a big reason for that, again, not something I really knew, I need to dig into this space more, is 
that there actually aren't that many manufacturers that make these chip cards. They're really expensive and they're pretty complex to make. And so uh, according to the article, they interviewed someone that said there's literally less than what you can count on one hand number of manufacturers who actually have the technical ability to build and operate these cards. So they're pretty hard to get. And I think the most interesting thing to me out of this whole article was the fact that banks, maybe for the first time, uh, at least in a long time, they find themselves at the bottom of the pile, right? So if you want to get chips to manufacture your chip cards, well, ordinarily you'd think, well, you know, banks should be able to get those. Banks make a lot of money. They're these big companies. They're able to really like kind of throw their weight around. And even if there's a limit to the supply of these chips, banks should be able to get them. That's not true, though, because banks have to compete with all of the card manufacturers, all the car manufacturers, all of the smartphone manufacturers, all of these other companies that want chips that are actually much bigger, higher margin businesses that are sort of muscling banks to the side. So the takeaway from this article was that, you know, big financial institutions like American Express and Chase and Discover, they don't really seem to be uh, suffering too much in terms of this supply chain delay. But credit unions and regional banks, kind of the bottom of the totem pole in this chip card world, they're really struggling to get these. And I, I don't know, Key, I'm just fascinated by the story. Like, are we going to run into a situation where these customers of these banks and credit unions like have their card expire and don't get a new one if they lose their card like do they have to switch to another card and it becomes top of wallet is there some weird effect on like the liability for fraudulent transactions i don't know what did you think of the story well i was also delighted by the story supply chain snafus are popping up in a variety of places and i did not expect credit or the literal cards themselves to you know, fall prey to this. It does show that, you know, I think one, the EMV uh, shift has taken hold. Um, Banks are not seeming to offer cards that don't have chips. They are just really quoting customers on long lead times. The other thing too is that outside of the big 2015 through 2017 shift in EMV, there probably is not a huge demand for these cards. It's probably pretty regular. A bank can probably count on issuing X amount of cards a year to new customers and then X amount of cards to um, that are lost or replaced or expired. And that's probably kind of a known amount. But I was fascinated also to learn that there's just a lot of competition for these cards and that consolidation has impacted availability in this space. I joked that this is why I have 10 credit cards. This is not why I have 10 credit cards. But (laughs) one benefit of having 10 credit cards is that I do not fear losing a card and being lost without one. I, you know, I have backups, but I guess other people kind of manage their life and finances differently and maybe have fewer backups to to reach for if they lose a card. And then the other thing I was wondering is... um, does this change like virtual card issuances? I'm fascinated by how if you lose a card, you're probably deactivating it from your wallet, um, from mm-hmm. your digital wallet. So you mm-hmm. can't use that card. But is there an opportunity for banks and credit unions that are struggling with this to maybe issue vi- virtual cards that might be serviceable in the digital wallet or at a point, you know, point of sale terminal that can take that type of payment or be used online? What are your thoughts on this? Could we get some sort of additional technology adoption if it helps? service their customers a little faster. 
Yeah, I thought the exact same thing. I mean, I think virtual cards have sort of quietly become kind of a monster in the industry, actually, because the technology is finally sort of caught up to being able to issue cards on demand, to be able to provision them to digital wallets, to be able to issue one-time cards, cards for special uses, cards that are limited for a certain amount of time. And so essentially the cost to issue a card, if it's been decoupled from its physical form, has really kind of plummeted, right? And there's a bunch of issuer processors that specialize in issuing virtual cards and building sort of experiences around that virtual card issuance. So I definitely do think that is very, very possible. I think one thing that is kind of an interesting competitive challenge as it relates to virtual cards for banks is I think banks have been kind of reluctant to push the idea of virtual cards to their customers and educate their customers about virtual cards because they don't really like those cards being provisioned to the mobile wallets that customers use, Uh, right? Because they don't don't actually want them used. (laughs) Not really, right? Because like, if you think about it from like an Apple Pay perspective, you know, Apple takes an extra slice of those transactions because of the special deal that they've arranged with MasterCard and Visa for when you use, you know, a bank's card in Apple Pay. And so I think that banks are kind of a little bit stuck between a rock and a hard place in that I think they would want under normal circumstances to go, hey, you know, you don't need a physical card, like just use virtual cards. Here's a whole interface. I will say that like Capital One is an example does a really good job of like, they have a browser extension that you can upload where whenever you're like checking out or buying something online, the browser extension automatically activates and offers to create a one-time digital card for that purchase. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. And so it's like a great way to manage security. Yeah. You can actually um, I, I sometimes secretly use it for like free trials where I want something, but I don't want to keep paying for it. And so I set up the virtual card and then I set it so that it expires like the day after I make the initial purchase. And then they can't automatically charge my card once the free trial ends. So virtual cards have a lot of utility and there are some larger banks, I think, that are kind of starting to adopt them and push them onto their customers. The thing I think might be an interesting way out of this rock and a hard place, though, for banks is what EWS is cooking up with their new digital wallet that they're supposedly working on and going to be launching this year. Maybe that's the mechanism for banks to get more into the digital wallet game and go, no, virtual cards are great. And by the way, if you're going to do a virtual card, you should download our wallet and use this one. So maybe that's when we'll see this logjam kind of break apart. Yeah. And I think this is just a good reminder that for as innovative as we think of technology and fintech and the idea of money, so much of banking is still conducted in like either in a physical channel, in a physical transaction, or with a physical item. And that, you know, (laughs) I think this will come up later when we talk about some more payments, but just the instrument by which we use to make a payment, when we have a disruption in that space, it kind of reveals like the, like, you know, almost the wizard behind the curtain that we can talk about all these innovations about virtual cards, about virtual wallets. And then we come back to the fact that like literally like two companies are making the chips that go into our credit cards. And then if you lose your card, you can't get a new card and then you don't have access to money. And I think it's so interesting to reflect on those moments when there's just a real gap between what's possible and what actually is how people use and spend money. No, absolutely. Well, I mean, I think even like, you know, I was thinking about like, okay, well, if this happened to me, well, I could start using cash like on my day to day basis until it happens, except I can't because, right, yeah, then I can't get to the ATM, right? So it's like, I mean, literally, my only alternative would be go into the bank branch 
and fill out a slip <laughs> to get cash. Like that's insane, right? Like going from like having yeah, my car to being to be happy. <laughs> no, yeah, we can't let that happen. So hopefully, Don't go to uh, bank branches. No, no, yeah, like last, last, absolute worst case uh, scenario. Kia, do you want to jump to the next story? Yeah, and I, I don't want to be a hater. Um, I, I think deposit. <laughs> I think you know, innovation is good for a lot of people. But I, you sent me a story, and I texted you back. What the heck is this? The story you sent me was at Modern Fi, which um, describes itself as the first tech-enabled marketplace that allows banks to exchange deposits on demand. It had raised $4.5 million in seed funding led by Andreessen Horowitz and um, industry leaders, including tech, finance, and government. I do believe I saw that JP Morgan invested in this firm Mm -hmm. and that Modern Fi is building a deposit marketplace that connects banks with excess deposits to other banks that need funding. This is so banks can manage their balance sheet liquidity with additional funding sources. They are working with banks between 500 million and 100 billion. So this is a really big range of banks, um, (laughs) real small community banks and real big um, regionals. And my question to you was, what is this? How is it different? And doesn't this already exist? Do you have any comments on this product before I kind of get into why I was so confused about it? Yeah, I mean, so I'm going to let you take most of the the lion's share of the commentary on this one, because I know this is an area you've spent some time thinking about and looking into. But I think I had the same reaction, which is, you see this a lot in fintech where these companies come in and they discover a problem, right? That's like, oh, look at this. Look how this works. This is amazing. Like it's so antiquated and there's no technology involved in this. And like we could make this so much better and faster and more seamless. I, I actually, um, in a previous job, spent some time researching like the loan syndication market, which is kind of the same thing, right? Like, you know, credit unions and banks syndicating out shares of the loans that are on their books to other banks and credit unions so they can kind of share that and diversify their risk and their revenue. And there are companies building sort of marketplaces and tech-enabled marketplaces for those. But I think what they discovered, and I think what ModernFi will probably discover as well, is a lot of this stuff has been happening relatively efficiently for a long time, right? Like, it's not like banks woke up and were like, oh my God, what happens if we don't have enough deposits or we have excess deposits? What do we do? Like, there are plenty of established mechanisms which you're going to get into for how this has traditionally worked. And I think that, you know, a lot of times fintech founders look at those things and go, well, there's no tech. That must mean it's bad. And that's not a safe assumption, right? Like just because it's a little bit more of a manual process or just because it is more of a relationship driven process doesn't mean it doesn't work well, doesn't mean it doesn't satisfy the needs of those banks. So like go off on this in a little bit more detail. (laughs) Like what are they doing that's different or that uh, has already existed in the market? Yeah, I poked through, I clicked every single link on Modern Fi's website trying to figure (laughs) out basically more specifics about this product and then also what makes it so different than existing products. And I also read a couple of the blog posts. Look, I think liquidity is hot. You know, if you follow me on Twitter, you know I'm talking a lot about it. There's a lot of different liquidity facilities and wholesale funding avenues that banks can use and they exist. I actually don't know how tech enabled any of these places are, but there are, you know, in my experience, there is like just regular wholesale funding line from the FHLB, bankers banks. There are exchanges like the American exchange that generates the Ameribor rate. So the Ameribor rate is the rate that different banks will post excess funding. And then another bank 
you know, accepts, buys the funding, pays the rate. And then all of that, all of those different rates are averaged into an exchange mm-hmm. rate. So like mm-hmm. that's the mm-hmm. wholesale funding rate on a Maribor. You can use that instead of LIBOR or SOFR. SOFR is um, a secured funding. Maribor is unsecured. So this is a really good rate for banks. Like, so that when I saw the deposit enabled marketplace, I was literally like, is this just like a liquidity exchange where banks can post their liquidity? There's also... <laughs> To keep going on, there are brokered CDs, there yep. are listing service websites where banks can post how much they are willing to pay for a CD. There are reciprocal deposit networks like Promontory, Interfi, or Interfi now, where banks that have more, like an account that's above the deposit limit can post that account um, or the excess of the funds and then reciprocate funds with different banks that also are in the same position. So everyone retains deposit funding. The, you can put your money at the Fed or the discount window. You can borrow from the Fed. And then there are also sweep accounts. And so I was sitting here trying to just really be curious about the tech-enabled aspect of this. And maybe, you know, maybe there's a lot of demand for funding market deposit marketplaces. And so sure. one more deposit marketplace is not going to, you know, crowd the space. Maybe there is a concern that there's a monopoly on the mm-hmm. players in the space. And so, you know, deposit uh, modern fi looks like they're going to they're not charging anyone to post, but they mm-hmm. do take a little bit of the posted yield, just a little off the top, I guess. But I was just so confused and I think it's hard when you're a bank reporter and you focus on these like Um, operational aspects of banking. So if I was a bank that has too much liquidity or I'm a bank that doesn't have enough liquidity, how do I do that? And so you just learn that there are these institutions and facilities that exist. And then to be greeted by news that one is going to start existing and it is calling itself the first. And I just have questions around like, I don't think Ameribor is conducted on, you know, the corner of like Wall Street and whatever in New York, and then people like physically exchange the money. Like I, I'm pretty sure tech is enabled in all of these. Yeah, it's not like it's not in um, trading places when they're on the stock exchange and they're like waving the pieces right, of paper. That's not right. how it's not it in works. the pits. Yeah, and so right. I don't. I you know I want to have a lot of curiosity because I think you know maybe this is a service that exists. It seems like a lot of banks are going to play in this space, like a big range of banks. Maybe it'll be cheaper and that'll be good for banks too. But I had questions that I did not feel were answered. And hopefully it's a big success. Hopefully the seat, you know, um, it serves banks. But I just, the marketing really confounded me. And I started immediately listing off other places, other deposit marketplaces that actually do currently exist and are in current use. Yes, and are probably efficient enough for the purposes of what banks need, right? I mean, I I think to your point, like, I would imagine, I'm just guessing, but like, I would imagine there's a range of different options available. And the options that you choose relate to how much time you have and like what the level of urgency is. So there's some where you'll pay more to get access exactly when you need it. There are ones where if you have a little bit more notice and you can kind of plan around it, you can get a better deal. There is probably a certain degree of like relationship oriented stuff that happens here. That's true in every part of banking. I don't think that's necessarily bad. I also think that a lot of times smaller banks, in my experience at least, tend to sort of band together in these little networks. And so sometimes it's actually advantageous for them to not have to compete in the same larger pool as like bigger banks. And so I don't necessarily think those sort of smaller relationship networks are 
a bad thing or an inefficient way for the market to work. Sometimes it's more efficient. So I think that's potentially interesting. I guess a question I have for you, Kia, that I was thinking about this sort of whole discussion on Twitter sort of brought up for me is you mentioned like assets and sort of keeping your level of assets at like the right level. I guess it had never really occurred to me that post Durban Amendment, and this relates back to my hat saying yeah, Durban exempt, hat. Uh, yeah. that there would be banks that would sort of consciously try to stay as sort of big and well uh, sort of funded and uh, with enough assets as they could possibly get, but to stay underneath this sort of arbitrary $10 billion Durban exempt line. I, and it's kind of a strange dynamic, I think, in banking, because historically, the way that banking has worked is, you know, you either gobble someone up or you get gobbled up. It's acquire or be acquired. And that's an inside joke for those of you who went to acquire. If you acquired. Know, you know. And yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, and, um, you know, that was the model. And so going past these thresholds, these asset thresholds, there were things you had to think about, right? There were increased compliance costs. There was all kinds of things that went into sort of hitting these thresholds. But generally, it was sort of seen that like, the more you grew and the more you sort of blew past these different markers, the more successful you were as a financial institution. And the Durban Amendment and banking as a service and all of these different things have sort of monkeyed around maybe a little bit with that incentive structure? What What's your take on that question? So yeah, the Durban Amendment made a line and it created a very distinct incentive for banks to stay under it. And if a bank was going to go over it because of the change in interchange, banks could actually calculate how much money they needed to make to make up their lost interchange. And Oh, interesting. And so what we saw from right after the Dodd-Frank Act is we saw a couple of banks really need to calculate how they were going to go over it. And then we also saw <laughs> the um, some banks with big prepaid card businesses decide that the interchange revenue from prepaid cards was high enough that they could probably actually be pretty profitable and divorce that from asset growth. I am, you know, since I started covering the financial services space in 2011, I'm not actually familiar with if there were banks that were kind of playing with that idea of mm. profitability divorced from asset growth, but certainly mm. in Durban or post-Durban, we saw that. And just so for your listeners who maybe don't care about banks that go over the $10 billion threshold. I looked at, I went back to, um, I dug in the archives to one of my favorites, Old National Bank Corp that um, post 2010 went on a series of acquisitions um, in part because they knew that they were going to have Durban. And I thought Old National at the time really did a good job of explaining the Durban impact. So in 2013, at the end of 2013 and the beginning of 2014, they announced two deals that are going to add $1.6 billion in assets to their $9.5 billion. So this is definitely going to send them over. They had actually calculated back in September 2013 that they were going to need to add $2 billion in assets to make up from their loss of interchange of going over. Um, <laughs> going over Durban or going over $10 billion is going to cost them $7.8 million in interchange income a year. And wow. then the other thing they telegraphed is how Durban was going to impact them. So once you go over $10 million at year end, mm -hmm. Durban, the lower interchange goes into effect the following July. And so they announced these deals in third quarter and at the beginning of the fourth quarter of 2014 because they can 
make it so that the Durban interchange reduction will not hit until July 2015. This is probably way more scheduled. Like this feels like more planning than goes into a wedding, right? Totally. To, yeah. find, <laughs> to find two deals that are a specific size to time them so that they will close by year end 2014 so that you have two extra billion dollars in assets by July 2015. And so all of this is to say that for banks that have a large retail like customer base that uses their debit cards with their chips in them, Durban is expensive and they have to find the money and they have to make it up. So for what has happened and to you know tie that to the banking as a service banks, these banks have now chosen the, a different path as far as I can tell. And the reason why I can tell that is because since Durban has gone into effect, you know, 2010, 2011, we have only seen one bank go over $10 billion in assets that had a what I would say was a sizable banking as a service line. And what they did with that line was they spun it off. That bank is Customers Bank and mm. uh, Bank Mobile or BM Technologies. We haven't seen other banks do that and what that means for these banking as a service banks. So banking as a service banks that especially rely on interchange to make money, they will gather a lot of deposits, but mm. they don't want to grow loans, right? Because right. they don't want to go over 10 billion. Right. So they have to figure out a strategy of how to manage this excess liquidity, keeping liquidity in the bank, having too many deposits, like that's just not a good, that's not always a great um, strategy. So they have to find ways to, to either deploy their deposits into short-term loans that mm-hmm. cycle through really quickly. Mm-hmm. They will do loans that they can sell. So SBA or some other securitization mm-hmm. um, where they make the loan, it's their loan, they're the true lender, and mm-hmm. then they sell it and then they get the revenue. So mm-hmm. you know, turning assets, moving from interest income to fee income. And then they will also use sweep accounts or they'll just push the deposits out of the bank so that they retain the FDIC insurance, but that the bank doesn't have the liquidity itself. And this is just such a specific problem for, or like, I don't know, strategy for Mm -hmm. these banks. And I think about it every time I hear about banks entering banking as a service is that, yes, you'll get some marginal fee revenue potentially. Yes, you'll get deposits. But do you actually now have a strategy of how this business line fits into your asset growth? And have you decided if you're willing to stay under $10 billion for forever and grow in other ways that aren't related to assets? Do you have any thoughts on this uh, playbook that's being written um, in the 10 plus years since Durban? Yeah, it's so interesting. I mean, you did a great job laying out the dynamics of that. I mean, I think from my perspective, it is the the point you made about profitability being divorced from asset growth is so, so interesting to me, right? Because historically, that's just not the way that banks have thought about profitability, right? Like if you want to become more profitable, you grow your assets, you get to a larger scale, and you just generate more profits as you go. And that's just the model. And this is like this weird, it's almost like you heard the stories of like sea lions that will like sort of get up like a river and then like will somehow jump into like a lock or a dam and suddenly they go from like having to like really hunt for fish to just swimming this really like placid you know body of water where there's just fish everywhere and they're taking like one bite out of the fish and then throwing it away it kind of reminds me of that where it's like these banking as a service banks have like gotten into the locks and they're just like well we could go back to hunting fish and doing the like thing that we're sort of genetically like bred to do 
or we could just stay here. And yeah, we have to be a little clever about like, you know, making sure that we don't go over a certain asset threshold. You know, we have to sort of, I would imagine over the last couple of years, given the sort of surge that we saw in deposits and sort of liabilities on balance sheets, you know, yeah, we have to get a little bit kind of clever about how we deal with that. We have to spin up these different ways to convert interest income into fee income. You know, I mean, I think obviously we saw a lot of smaller banks buy a lot of bonds and do things like that, which, you know, depending on the timing of that can be challenging. But there are ways to sort of turn assets into profit, essentially, while staying under that. And it it is such a it's so unnatural compared to the way that banking has always worked that, you know, again, we joke about like, you know, the entire modern fintech industry was sort of born out of the Durban Amendment and sort of unintended consequences. But that actually is kind of true for a segment of banking as well. It's not just fintech that sort of had this new life that was born out of the Durban Amendment. It's a segment of banks as well. Yeah. Also, I I didn't really expect the sea lion analogy. So thank you for that. Um, I No problem. It's what um, I do. I will also say that, you know, these banks that add banking as a service, you know, we have like what I call the OGs. So we have Pathword, Meta, Green Dot. If you'll recall, maybe like in 2016, 2017, 2014, even both of those banks sold off their traditional community commercial um, business lines, they realized like just the assets were not and, and, you know, how those banks have to manage the risk of those loans was a little distracting or too long of a a time. I was going to say commercial loans are not exactly cycling off your balance sheet quickly. right? And so we also saw, I remember Pathword, I believe, bought an asset-based lender. So asset-based lending is a very interesting line of business, um, really tech enabled if you're looking Mm -hmm. for that. But I think now I would just love to be a fly on the wall of these strategy sessions of banks that want to do this lending line or want to do um, banking as a service. And then are like, well, what are we going to do about commercial lend- our commercial lenders, right? Yeah. Like Coastal yeah. still manages a community bank that is a commercially focused bank in addition to their tech unit. And so, you know, maybe that is a bank to watch on how they manage that unit. Um, do they do shorter loans? Do they start doing loan sales, right? Something that, that uses the deposits that they're getting in a way that's profitable, they can put them into, you know, they can put these very cheap deposits into loans that, you know, maybe are like 2% or 3%, you know, and then sell the loan or and get the fee income. But it's just a really, it's a really big strategy consideration. I think banking as a service has really turned and inverted some of the incentives that we have in banking and how you have to think about, you know, what is a good bank. When I wrote my story about banking as a service, I was actually really struck by the size of the customer accounts at some of these banks by customers. They would some of these banks that are under 10 billion, maybe even under 5 billion, are like in the top 50 of banks in the country. So they are big banks from, you know, these um, compliance perspectives. And then also from just like probably the amount of people needed to manage those types of accounts. But they are small banks in this other way. And again, in banking, we have these like really old fashioned ways of thinking about bigness and smallness, and it is asset-based. And for for some banks, that is increasingly irrelevant, and it is not useful to think about complexity in banking as it relates to assets or size. Yeah, no, absolutely. Well, and I, I think the other part of it that factors into it is just like, what is the ownership of the bank? And how does that part of it work? Because, you know, I mean, just thinking selfishly, if I was, you know, uh, the sort of majority shareholder in a private bank that was growing to a certain size, you know, profitability without having to deal with growing assets is not like an unattractive idea to me, right, or probably to my other shareholders. And so I do think there is an interesting sort of alternative path. And the last thing I'll say on this before we move on is, I do think, 
to your point, there is like a cultural element to this too, right? Because, you know, as anyone who's sort of worked in the banking as a service space knows, banks that are really good at banking as a service look totally different in terms of their employees, the sort of distribution of different types of jobs within their bank, the just sort of operating rhythm and like culture of the bank. Like banking as a service is tech focused. It's all about partnerships. It's all about sales. It's all about sort of building the right tech stack and having the right integrations. It's really heavy on compliance for obvious reasons. And, you know, in contrast to that, commercial lending is a very good old boyish sort of, yeah, like it's just like, I mean, if you're a good commercial lender, you have good relationships, you know all the different sort of potential clients and current clients in your little patch. And it's, it's much more like enterprise sales and relationship management than it is like tech enabled building to scale. And so I do think that banks that sort of find themselves at this sort of juncture really do probably for the most part have to decide do we want to continue to be in a commercial bank or do we want to go down the route of being a banking as a service bank doing both at the same time as like, I don't know, like being a professional baseball player and a professional musician at the same time? Like it's just two different parts, two parts of your brain. Of your brain. I'm not sure are going to work. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. And again, it'll just be really interesting to see any if any other bank that has a big um, banking as a service um, business ever goes over 10 billion. I am fascinated by the growth stories of these institutions because it is just so non-narrative. Right. No, absolutely. Um, Should we jump to our wait, but why? Yeah. So Alex, I've got a question for you because I don't tend to see this in the bank space. I read that FIS, which is a large core provider of many banks, that's why I'm familiar with them, but I'm assuming they have other capabilities than just providing the pipes of banking, um, is spinning off a company they acquired called WorldPay that they had acquired for um, $43 billion. And I like just don't get it. I don't know, like, <laughs> should they have bought WorldPay to begin with? Why are they spinning it out? Why can't they make it work? And $43 billion is like really big. Like that's like, we do not see those kind of deals in banking. So can you tell me a little bit about this and explain it to me? Yeah, no, absolutely. It's a really good question and a good story. And it is definitely like a wait, why did that happen sort of thing? Because 43 billion is a big amount of money. I think basically they've said that they're going to take a goodwill impairment on that of about $17 billion, which is, I think you were doing the back of the envelope math, what, like 40% of yeah, the it's like overall a purchase bit, yeah, price? I, roughly, you know, 43, 20. Yeah. So yeah. And 30, so I mean, 40%. that's like, that's a huge amount to say, basically, we overpaid by this amount for this asset, right? And so a little bit of background. Um, you're right. FIS is a massive core banking provider. They do all kinds of stuff within the banking space. They're sort of one of the big three tech vendors that you know pretty much all banks work with. And a very sort of core part of their business for a long time has been the sort of issuer processing business, basically helping banks issue payment cards. And what's interesting about this acquisition is that WorldPay sort of grew up on the other end of that transaction and that other end of that value chain. So they were a and are a merchant acquirer primarily that would help merchants to accept payments. And in particular, WorldPay, which was started in the UK and sort of grew to be, as the name suggests, sort of a uh, globally focused merchant acquirer, they specialized in e-commerce transactions. So in a way, they were kind of like Stripe before Stripe. Uh, It sounds sort of silly to say that now, but it really is the case 
case, like back in the late 90s, early 2000s, first dot-com boom, a lot of the e-commerce payment transactions were going through WorldPay from a merchant perspective. And, you know, the payment processing business, and particularly the merchant acquiring business, really became, over time, from a market competitive perspective, a game of scale, right? I'll shout out uh, Mark Rubenstein at Net Interest, who wrote a great piece sort of outlining the history of WorldPay. If you haven't, haven't read that, you should go check that out. It's really great. But one of the things he sort of talks about in that piece is just the fact that WorldPay, because it was competing in an environment where scale mattered, and the more scale you had, the better pricing you could offer, and it was just a market where it really wasn't focused on like how good objectively your merchant acquiring capabilities were. It was really just a function of like pricing, pricing power, scale, the number of different sort of countries you could operate in. WorldPay really grew through acquisitions, right? So its strategy really became sort of centered on M&A and sort of acquisitions, mergers, ways they could grow sort of inorganically uh, in order to increase that scale and increase their pricing power in the market. That worked for a long time, but eventually what they found was that while they'd been very successful in Europe, uh, where they were originally sort of growing, they had a hard time cracking into the US market because a lot of the core sort of value propositions of the platform they had built were really built around helping to facilitate commerce transactions in whatever currency the uh, person who was making the purchase was local to. So they were really good at working across multiple countries like in Western Europe, not so good in the US where we don't have that problem. And there was a much more sort of concentrated set of market competitors on the merchant acquiring side. So when they came to the US, they also went through a couple of additional mergers and acquisitions. Vantiv was one that they went through very early. And then eventually they got to a point where they started talking to FIS and FIS acquired them or merged with them. And the, um, the takeaway from the sort of FIS WorldPay merger at the time, the rationale for it was, well, FIS is on the issuer side of this value chain and WorldPay is a massive player on the merchant side of this value chain. And so if we, this new combined FIS WorldPay entity can control both, well, then we are controlling both sides of that transaction. There should be lots of natural synergies for being able to apply what we do on the issuing side to what we do on the acquiring side and vice versa. And so they could kind of create like a more sort of efficient, streamlined, intelligent, almost network for connecting the acquiring side and the merchant acquiring side together. What ended up happening, though, is those synergies never really manifested. And the reason for that is that both of those companies are just massive and have grown tremendously through acquisitions. And um, because they've grown so much through acquisitions, they don't have one cohesive code base or technology platform. They have dozens of different ones that they've acquired and have sort of wired together loosely, but that don't work all that well together. And so the vision for combining these two assets was we can take these two different products and combine them together. But it's really like trying to combine dozens of different products together, having to manage all of these very complex technology stacks that don't naturally play well together. And when you compare that to the competitors that are in the merchant acquiring space today, companies like Stripe and Ajin 
and Shopify and Square, those companies all have a single code base and a single platform. And they really haven't grown for the most part through acquisitions. They've grown through offering a really great integrated technology platform for merchants that offers more value. So they don't compete on the same dynamics of price and scale that WorldPay was used to competing on. And so this WorldPay FIS combination, you know, Kia, you'll like this analogy. To me, it kind of reminds me of like the Milky Way galaxy and the Andromeda galaxy, which are actually on a collision course and in like 4 billion years will collide with each other. And that sounds really like dramatic and interesting. And I'm sure a bunch of cool things will happen when that happens. And actually it won't because the Milky Way and the Andromeda are massive galaxies that even though they have trillions of stars, they're also spread out that when these two things collide, really, it's just a bunch of empty space combining with other empty space. Yeah. Yeah. And it's like, They'll technically combine, but nothing's going to happen. No stars are going to run into each other. There'll be no collisions or new value that's created out of that. It's the same thing with WorldPay and FIS. There's no collision of value happening with that. And essentially what they're saying with this impairment and plan to spin off WorldPay later this year is we now recognize there's no way we're going to get value out of this and we have to just move on. So they can't get value out of it because they can't gut it and then re- kind of rebuild it with a single code or better codes. They can't. I mean, is the world pay model then now over? Like, is it kind of, you know, this kind of bolt on don't integrate, run separate systems? Is that model not going to work for companies like this? Well, what's interesting about that, from my perspective, at least, is that I don't think that model will work particularly well. But I also think WorldPay is an example of an FIS too are an example of you kind of can't teach old dogs new tricks. And so I think these companies are so used to growing and expanding their product set through acquisitions and mergers, it's kind of the only way they know how to do business. And so I think even when WorldPay gets spun off, I don't think they're going to go, okay, we need to take a huge amount of time and spend a huge amount of money to totally replatform everything we're doing. We need to basically sort of pause our business totally like replatform what we're doing and then go out and compete on sort of equal footing with Stripe and Ajin and those companies. I don't think that's what they're going to do. I think they're going to look at it as, okay, now we're free from FIS. That was a mistake. But now let's go back and acquire other companies and grow the way we were growing before. So I don't think that's a good strategy, but I sort of get the sense that's what WorldPay and FIS, once they're free of WorldPay, are going to continue to do because it's kind of all they know how to do. The other thing that I think is worth pointing out about this is, Remember those uh, commercials from the 90s where they're trying to scare you about drugs and they'd show you like, this is your brain that's healthy. This is your brain on drugs. And like your brain on drugs would be like this degraded, terrible picture that would scare the hell out of you. I kind of think that's sort of what happens to fintech companies when they're bought by private equity companies. So like private equity is the other sort of part of this story. Private equity companies have played a huge role in the operation of FIS, Vantiv, WorldPay. They've been owned and then spun off of and spun You're out of. You're saying private equity maybe was a motivating factor in doing the acquisition? I think it absolutely was. Okay. Yeah. And the way that, you know, private equity works at a very sort of 30,000 foot level is that they come in and they pump a lot of money into the business and play a very active sort of role in managing and turning around the business, but with the goal to just generate alpha and generate a return, right? So they're not necessarily focused on like, what's the best long-term way to create value for customers? What's the best way to build a killer product? They're focused on just how can we increase the value of this asset? And so like with WorldPay, when they were bought by a private equity company, I can't remember the name of the private equity firm, 
they basically went on a spree acquiring a ton more companies. So they accelerated that acquisition strategy, which in the short term paid off huge for the private equity company, but it put WorldPay in a much worse position competitively in order to be able to sort of go out in the market and compete on equal terms with Stripe and Audion and sort of this new generation of competitors. So I don't know. I mean, I not that private equity is going to go away or that like it's necessarily like evil, but I do think that the incentives private equity companies have are often at odds with the goal you would have if you were running the company by yourself, which is let's build the best product and win based on the value that we provide to our customers. That's just not really that model. And I think, um, you know, in banking, we have a lot of M&A. For the most part, it's banks buying other banks. We do sometimes have banks buying um, non-banking. And, we, you know, we do have some banks that run payment processing. And I don't know if there's quite as much acquisition activity on that end. But I know that, you know, pricing is really important in banking. You know, I don't yeah. know how this deal was valued, but I know that it cost $43 billion. And um, you'd really hope that you are buying. Banks really don't get credit for revenue synergies um, at announcement. So that's just like icing on the cake. You get credit for provable cost saves, a modelable cost saves. You have to be able to add them up in a column. And <laughs> then you kind of build and you build your price for the deal kind of based on it should incorporate those cost saves. And it also should kind of, you know, work for both parties. It should be at, you know, these, the premium and should be reasonable. There's banks get, you know, like kind of crushed if they pay too much. There's just a lot of discipline and public messaging around pricing. And I'm kind of fascinated that this deal was, you know, this goodwill impairment indicates that it was Seven, you know, thirty percent premium above the actual value of the company. So, and then the it just seems like they're you know from the outside. I have a lot of curiosity around how just you know the integration. Like, was the integration plan to not integrate? Was the integration plan to yeah? And, and because I I do kind of see that it could be very attractive to think about you know this kind of horizontal integration and some of the synergies you could get from that. But it just seems so sad to have this total spinoff. And you know, like people are like, it was never gonna work. And I don't know, man. It's like two friends get married and it's like a really expensive wedding and then people at the wedding are like that's never gonna work it'll just be yeah right like let's play let's place bets on how um how fast they get divorced right like right, this is not your galaxy's right. analogy this is a lot sadder of an analogy no but. no well i mean it's to use your analogy it's like the both parts of the couple really like sailing you know and so you're like oh like she likes sailing he likes sailing like this is gonna go great but like if you actually knew them as people, not just their sort of surface level interests, you'd go, they're going to hate each other. And this is never going to work. And it's just not compatible at a deeper level. And I think I think that's the point, right, is that like, there was this sort of top level synergy that was easy for McKinsey to draw on a whiteboard. I'm picking on McKinsey. I don't know if they were the ones who helped sort of arrange this. But that's the type of like sort of whiteboard strategy synergy thing that you see. But the deeper question is like, there's all these little fiefdoms within each of these two companies. Will everyone who runs all those different fiefdoms cooperate for the greater good of this larger initiative? Or are they going to continue to sort of fight with each other and not integrate or do the right stuff? And I don't think you had to know too much about each of those companies individually to suss out that it might be a little harder than it seemed on the whiteboard. But, you know, again, that's kind of where those things go. Do you want to uh, end real quickly with our um, unanswerable question? Yes, let's move on to our unanswerable question. I think that one's yours this week. It is. Okay, so mine is, I try to make it super unanswerable and broad. So I'll just ask this question, and I'll explain what I mean. And the question I'm going to ask is, who are public utilities for? And 
when I say that, what I mean is that in a lot of other countries around the world, the governments in those countries will take a very active role, not only in regulating financial services, but in building and maintaining and providing access to public infrastructure that those regulated entities can get access to. And, you know, there are different ways of doing that, you know, like PIX in Brazil, for example, is a P2P payment uh, service that the central bank in Brazil has sort of sponsored and is driving in the market and is having a lot of adoption. In India, they have an entire stack of services that go from payments all the way down to credit lending down to like core sort of digital identity. And it's this whole sort of stack that you can get access to that helps just sort of facilitate the basic blocking and tackling of financial services. Now, obviously, every market it has that infrastructure. But the thing I'm fascinated by in the US is that we have that infrastructure, but it's not public infrastructure, or in some cases, it's sort of semi-public, semi-private infrastructure, right? And so I wrote a little while ago in my newsletter about big bank consortiums like the Clearinghouse that were, you know, started in the like 1850s, and actually that predate some of the um, sort of later institutions that we now know, like the Federal Reserve. But they essentially functioned as the sort of de facto central bank for the US for like 60 years before the Federal Reserve was created by Congress. And, you know, I think that's really, really interesting. And you even see the sort of legacy of some of these private sort of impulses or sort of capitalist impulses, I suppose you could say, in the way that things work today, right? I'm still learning a lot about the sort of underlying mechanics of how the Federal Reserve works. But one thing that has always sort of struck me as really kind of bizarre is that the Federal Reserve is this sort of weird private-public market hybrid where part of it's sort of a regulatory body, part of it's sort of a privately owned set of sort of operating banks. Part of it is, you know, sort of a committee that sets the uh, sort of interest rates and sort of controls monetary policy. So it's this very strange sort of hybrid entity. And the reason that matters, and this is what I'd love to get your sort of take on, Kia, is the Federal Reserve supplies a great deal of the sort of infrastructure that banking runs on in the U.S. And um, access to that infrastructure, it's not exactly clear cut who gets access to that infrastructure and why they get access to that infrastructure and who makes the decisions about when to do that and how competitive concerns about that kind of filter into this. So I know you've been spending a lot of time thinking about and talking to people and writing about like master accounts at the Federal Reserve as an example of this sort of tension that exists, particularly in the U.S. around this sort of public versus private utilities question. What have you sort of found when you've poked at this big, big question? So I think and, you know, if if I was going to have to explain this to someone else like yourself, I would start with two um, principles. First is my house, my rules. Two is uh, everything is built on top of everything that came before it. And so, <laughs> right. so to like in the current controversy about master accounts, you have to go backwards and backwards and backwards and backwards. And you kind of have to go back to the founding of the Federal Reserve, which actually is not that old of a bank. Like it's, you know, the clearinghouse is older than the Federal Reserve System. And the Federal Reserve System is, you know, almost like a like a holy trinity. And, you know, the father is the board and they're the independent government agency that is appointed by the president and confirmed by the Senate, the members of it. The Federal Reserve has 12 member banks or reserve banks throughout the country. And then these reserve banks 
in contrast to the board, are private corporations and they are owned by their members. So they're kind of like co-ops, I guess. And then the, you know, the spirit, the Holy Spirit is the Federal Open Markets Committee. This is our vibes committee. Um, They set the monetary policy of the United States. And it can be kind of confusing. It was certainly confusing for me to understand that this entity that I kind of thought was one was actually a faction of three and that they have different roles and responsibilities. They have different funding sources. They are governed by different rules in some situations or different policies, specifically, you know, as a reporter, the Freedom of Information Act, what does and doesn't have to be public. What we have also seen is that different reserve banks have different policies for buying and selling of stock, um, Mm. right? Mm -hmm. Like they kind of just run themselves and there isn't as much public policy or creation of of policy where the public gets to weigh in on some of these things. Now, as a regulator, the Federal Reserve Board is subject to some comment policies. They make letters public, things like that. Some of their meetings are public, so they are subject to certain um, disclosure rules. Now, why that matters, why that like trifecta, the Holy Trinity matters is because the Federal Reserve Banks, you know, if we go back to back to back in history, they existed in part to offer their member banks of their co-op settlement accounts. And this was really useful to banks to move payments with each other. So, you know, I have a bank and you're in the same district as me. We're both members of the Federal Reserve. We can actually just tell the Federal Reserve, our Federal Reserve Bank to debit our accounts and settle it rather than you and I um, laboriously going back and forth to settle our accounts. And then over the years, who got to be a member of the bank? would change. And sometimes it would change by an act of Congress. Sometimes it would change by if there was an economic crisis, that would, they would expand membership, they would exclude membership. Some of it was changed because these reserve banks are run independently of each other. Some banks were letting in non-members to have a settlement or clearing account, but they had to have like a lot of money in the reserve account. Some banks were not allowing that at all. There was just not uniform policy. And that had to kind of get hammered out over time. But since 1980, basically, if you have a bank charter plus stock deposit insurance, mm-hmm. which most banks do, or mm-hmm. if you have a credit union charter plus credit union um, share, co- share insurance, you can be a member of the bank. And the reason, and then if you're not a member of the bank, you have to find, you have to conduct your business through a bank member in order to get the bank. Now, why do I need this? Like, so that these accounts, these settlement accounts, um, helped with payments. And so as the U.S payments activity expanded geographically as technology like the telegram and magnetic checks with magnetic ink like this is all going back in time here this counts yeah yeah. this is revolutionary back in the day yeah (laughs) it just became really easy to use the federal reserve to settle these accounts again rather than banks managing or using something like the clearinghouse to, to manage these kinds of payments and so when electronic payment rails when, when that like technology was able to exist, the federal it made sense for the Federal Reserve system to build out these rails. And so now the account is access to the payment rails <laughs> um, or is seen as accessing to the payment rails. If you have this account, you're able to get on the rails, you're able to send money to other people in other accounts. Mm-hmm. And if you're not able to get on the rails, you have to use another bank, a correspondent bank, a banker's bank to do it. And pay um, a fee for that. Yeah, and pay a fee, right. And so I've always been fascinated that So much regulation in this country is kind of predicated on, are you a bank or are you not a bank? And 
what I have learned and what I think, you know, Julie Hill, um, University of Alabama professor, Twitter Mutual, has done a great great job of (laughs) explaining that kind of what we see from the outside is we are not seeing the policy and the rulemaking and we're not seeing the deliberative process by which these different reserve banks make a decision about who gets access. And the reason why is because they believe, okay, they believe that because they're private corporations, information that is of public interest. So just to pull that apart then, so what I understand, and I've followed a bunch of stuff Julie's done, and it's awesome, is that unlike the process that we go through when we're giving someone a bank charter an application uh, process yeah like an application process and there's sort of clear sort of requirements around it we've talked about de novo charters and starting a bank and like what that all looks like unlike that the process for giving someone access to fed master account which essentially means access to those rails that you talked about is technically legally there's some gray area in terms of who can be qualified for it, right? And so there's this sort of discretion, if I can use that word, that's given to the Federal Reserve member banks, which again are private companies uh, with private shareholders, that they can, within their region, sort of accept applications from different companies. Now, if it's a bank with a charter and with FDIC insurance, Pretty straightforward, pretty Easy. simple. It's Easy, yeah, yes. it's just going to say yes. However, there are lots of weird kind of examples, and Julie went through a bunch of them in this great piece that she wrote, where the bank in question is a bank in some sense and has some sort of claim on being like a depository institution, but is not a bank in that clear cut federal charter, FDIC insured kind of way. So this could be like, for example, a bank that gets a special purpose charter in Wyoming to custody crypto assets, just to use a very recent example of where this drama has come up. And when those sort of banks, a lot of them that are like licensed more at a state level rather than a federal level or whatever, have some a novel thing they're doing. There was another one in Colorado that was doing banking for cannabis that was a credit union. When these ones go to the Federal Reserve and say, hey, we'd love to get a you know access to this and a Fed master account and be able to process payments and send money around, do banking, essentially, the Federal Reserve has this weird discretion to say yes or to say no or to drag that process out. So can you kind of run us through like what a sort of typically non-typical confusing example of what this looks like is just to sort of add some color to that because it's kind of crazy how not standard it is. So you are alluding to Custodia, who has done probably more work than any non-bank to make the Fed articulate its rationale. So this goes back to my first um like principle, which is my house, my rules, the Fed, you know, because the Fed does not has this public private hybrid, they basically have been using their discretion about who gets an application. And these applications are not public the way that some of the applications that we file with FDIC are public. You know, the thing about FDIC is that's public money. So even though they're funded privately, that's our insurance money. Um, And so the Fed will just, you know, they'll get this application to get an account. Oftentimes, um, they'll say, do you have a charter? And, you know, in many of the situations that Julie put forward, the 
the company in question has a charter from a state regulator, um, state banking regulator. And then the next question they'll say is, well, do you have deposit insurance? And so the Fed has been using deposit insurance as a way to get out of not not giving the charter or pointing out. The other thing that they're using is they'll say, well, do you have um, an ABA routing number? I guess, you know, I was surprised to learn, I think you were surprised to learn that the trade group, the American Bankers Association actually issues routing numbers. So there's like three things that make it an easy yes. And then everything else is kind of vibes based. And um, (laughs) Julie does a really good job of breaking down what is publicly available. She did. She interviewed these people who have who have applied for Fed accounts. She's created timelines to indicate that like it can take like five years. Like, the you know, the Fed said it's normal for two to three years to get an application. And that just kind of can't be correct if you unless you have like a charter. Right. And so. The other thing, too, is we know that there was a fintech that did manage to get a um, Federal Reserve master account. The circumstances of that were a little unclear because someone who had served on the Fed board um, ended up joining this fintech's board. And then the fintech lost that account. None of that. (laughs) All of this is just publicly known. I've just said everything that I publicly know. But it's not clear that decision making that went into that. So there's some room there for like, a lot of times it's no, no, we kind of don't want you to. But like, that would be something if like all the Federal Reserve banks were just like kind of pushing off these non banks or sort of semi non bank state chartered banks, and just going, yeah, we'll get to it. But it's kind of unclear, and they can never get through. But to your point, it's so important to note that like, some do get through, or they get through, and then they get kicked back out. And so like, there is clearly some other mechanism that's not probably based on like a real rigorous process that some get through some don't. I can't believe you don't think the Fed is being very rigorous in their analysis of these applications. How dare you? Well, I mean, you know, to your point, there's things we don't there's things we don't know, but like that seems pretty suspicious. And so I go uh, sorry, go ahead. I didn't mean to interrupt, but I think that's a good point. Oh, I was going to say so Custodia doing God's work <laughs> over here sued the Fed. So Custodia said basically, and I'm going to paraphrase because, and if you would like to learn more about this, please, you know, Caitlin Long has done a lot of work. There are court filings, which are very useful because again, there's just not a lot of publicly known information about this. Yeah. We're getting some like discovery now, which is (laughs) is very exciting. Yeah. So she accused her Federal Reserve District um, Bank of basically slow rolling their application and said, I would like to see what you are using to assess my bank's application. And so in August 2022, the Fed put out a guide, like what they called guidelines about the how they assess master account applications. And it's there's six things and three tiers. And (laughs) honestly, like they didn't really tell us anything that we didn't know. They basically said that tier one um, is the, the hardest for a company because it's the bank charter plus deposit insurance. So those are the obvious yeses. Yeah, that's easy yes. And then everything else is kind of a little bit more nebulous and gives the Fed just a lot of leeway to say, well, we have questions about the risk this could pose to monetary policy or to like, I guess they're worried like maybe a hacker is going to steal all of the money in the Federal Reserve. I, you know, I couldn't ascertain that one from tier three. Um, the, the other thing that's kind of weird about this is just like, 
there there is a concern that I get, right? And I think we've seen this like the worst parts of the crypto ecosystem that have just melted down and have been subject to a huge amount of fraud. There is an element of like I'll just make up a hypothetical, but like if FTX had decided to operate in the US and had gotten a state charter from Wyoming and then had applied its copious persuasion and sort of political tools at its disposal to get to a Fed master account that probably, I don't know that it would have like melted the system down or anything. I don't think that dramatically, but like it wouldn't have been great or a great look for the Fed to have given access to FTX to get access to a master account. That's a like a hypothetical, but, but like, also maybe they don't fail. <laughs> like that's well, other thing too. Right, so right, can, right. Like, exactly. We don't, we don't live in that world where we don't, they don't yeah, that, that yeah, other hypothetical world. Facilities. <laughs> exactly. So we don't know what that would have looked like, but like the baseline is like, I get that there is a concern that you don't just want to hand these out like candy. I understand. However, I think the point you're making and that Julie's been really doing a good job driving home is that there's just no clarity at all about how this works. And, you know, to your point, you can kind of play everyone off each other. I think you compared it when we were talking before to like the Spider-Man meme where all the different Spider-Men are pointing at each other going like, well, don't talk to us, go talk to them. And they're like, no, don't talk to us, talk to them. Yeah. Yeah. And as soon as you have all of those things, magically, this door will like open for you. And so I do think that that's the sort of net of this and it, it tying it back to fintech. I think the challenge for fintech is, you know, you have to plan out what your roadmap looks like and how you're going to build your business and how much money you need to operate until you can hit these milestones, right? And so if you say, we're going to get a state charter here, and then we're going to go get a Fed master account here, and that whole process is going to take us, you know, say three and a half, four years, whatever it is, and we need funding to sort of sustain us through that period while we also build out our product, that's a very specific ask for VCs. And it's a harder ask these days because there's not as much money in fintech, but that's the specific ask that you can make and VCs can evaluate that. The challenge, though, as this is sort of driving home is if the Fed is just going to drag their feet and just mm-hmm. sort of hope that you go away or just run out of money before you take them to court, that's not a predictable or repeatable process. And it doesn't allow for competition yeah. to flourish in the market and to take it. And this goes back to the public utility thing. Like this is kind of a utility that anyone who wants to offer financial services will eventually need. And if you're restricting access to it in an unclear way, you are restricting competition. And I think the reason that matters is that you know the companies that own that are private shareholders in these federal reserve banks are banks right and yeah. um you know bank executives serve on their boards and you know to get a routing number you have to go to the ABA well the ABA is the American Bankers Association none of them really like all of this competition and so there is this sort of i think meta point that through this sort of nebulous private public market hybrid thing that we have and the lack of sort of clear rules and transparency, the banks that are sort of at the center of this can kind of subtly restrict competition in a way that's not real good, right? And so like, I, and maybe the, where we can end, Kia, is to can you talk just a little tiny bit about the um, sort of lawmakers getting involved in this and kind of what we're trying to do to get the Fed to sort of make this slightly better? Like, what does that look like? How are we going to fix this? Yeah. So, you know, it's so funny because, you know, you talk about it as being a public utility. And I think the Fed would disagree that the Fed strongly, rails strongly are disagree. a public yes. utility. That, they would totally um, disagree. And so I think there's a very big gap between you know, who the Fed believes it's accountable to, who the Fed, Federal Reserve Banks believe they're accountable to, and why we would want to know this information. And so, 
even going back to those guidelines, it's not even clear who is eligible to apply for an account. You actually don't really, it's not called an application. You have to request an account. You can't just apply. <laughs> like that, the arbitrariness no to yeah. this process that has been revealed by um, Custodia and other novel banks trying to get these rails and to determine like, you know, why is it that payment activity is so sacred that it needs to be protected to this level that only people who hold a special thing called a charter plus the some insurance get to access it. Um, and I think that there's probably some bigger questions about the role that payments plays in banking and you know how many payment rails should we have? And I don't know, you seem to be getting a little socialist about out here. I'm trying to. Not, not <laughs> you totally, heard it first. But like, Alex that's... wants a socialized payment system. I, I um, really kind of do, but... actually, honestly. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, so th- I think one of the first steps here... I mean, honestly, I think Congress could tell the Federal Reserve to open up pay- access to payments or to articulate. They, they could do that. They could pass yeah. a law. What a but, novel concept. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> right. But there could be some governance here. But the, what they actually did, and this is actually pretty exciting from just a little, um, from a disclosure point of view. From a is, bank nerd perspective. <laughs> right? Be honest. Be honest. From someone who just wants to look at a list and like <laughs> ruminate about the names is that the, you know, Congress in the National Defense Authorization Act of 2022 said that the board has to build a searchable database for all institutions that have a master account. Now, the Fed, I think, tried to beat them to the punch a little bit. Maybe the timing was more of a coincidence, or but, you know, I've got my tin hat on. And they said that they'll just publish a list. And Julie... I think, and you know, I'm, I'm going to be on Julie's side here, the searchable database by institution name, by city, state, maybe by Federal Reserve Bank district is going to be better than just a list. You know, we talked about this last week or last month about the similar bank names, but I'm just going to be so, you know, I, I think you can just assume any bank in the country, if they are not a member of the Federal Reserve, could be a member if they wanted to. They have no problems getting a, a, an account. What's going to be interesting are is everyone on that list who holds a trust account or trust charter, and then any other type of you know special institution that works in the financial services space that yeah. doesn't have a bank charter that does have access. And I think it's going to be really interesting to see like basically who is let in through the door and who wasn't. You know when we talk about custodia and other types of these novel banks posing like existential risk to the Federal Reserve payment system, that the payment system, Federal Reserve already has lots of risk, right? We've got all the SIFIs, we got all the too big to fails. We've got some banks that could cause some real disruption if they ran into some issues, if someone hacked into those banks and got into the master account. And so it's so interesting to think about where we're weighting risk. And I think that list is going to be really useful to even start having a conversation about, you know, why this company, why not this company? And, you know, I'm always curious as a reporter to see who doesn't want me to see this information. I want to see it more. Um, And so (laughs) I think the Federal Reserve, by fighting this application and really by going to court, has found itself to be more accountable than it's been in a while to our articulate its decision making. And if you don't like those decisions, they shouldn't be as arbitrary and capricious and as like, you know, you shouldn't find out in these ways who gets these accounts. This is not how we want to be running (laughs) this like access privilege base 
essential payment function in the United States, right? A public utility. It's a it's public, a public utility. utility. It's a I know, I know it is. <laughs> it's a public utility. No. Um, okay, so we'll uh, gavel our argument off there. I will say that, uh, Julie Hill, you have an open invitation once <laughs> this list is public to come on and like nerd out with us on this. Um, we can you know, raise a toast to slightly better transparency as it relates to all of this. The but, smallest um, of crumbs that we're getting. Smallest, the yeah, yeah, we'll celebrate so much. <laughs> yeah. um, this has been super fun to dig into and really fascinating. Kia, thank you for joining me and uh, we'll see you next month. Yep, see you. Thanks so much, Alex. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of FinTech Takes. Stay up to date with emerging companies and the latest FinTech trends by subscribing wherever you get your podcasts. And if you love FinTech Takes, please tell a friend. I'll see you next time.